This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here, sitting in for the wonderful autonomy. She's just taking a well-earned break for a while, so... And the scintillation continues here on Triple R with radiotherapy. And I'm fortunate enough to be joined here in the studio by two of Autonomy's regulars. Uh, We have the magnificently mindful, meditative and mentated Dr. Malice. (laughs) Good morning, Malice. Whoa, hello. What an intro. There's a bit of (laughs) excess of alliteration (laughs) sitting next to him. Pinning her psychological colours to her eponymous mast, we have Rainbow Doc. Good morning, Rainbow. How are you? Good morning. I was wondering what adjectives you were going to... Uh, attached to me, but thank you. <laughs> Lovely to see you. And last but not least, with her finger on the pulse, or at least she hopes somewhere near it, we have our medical student, Misdiagnosis. Good morning to you. Good morning. How do you know if you've found the pulse correctly? I have absolutely no idea. I've never found one correctly in my life. <laughs> well, you only know if you feel it. So I think most of the time when I'm not feeling a pulse, are they, are they dead? Yeah. <laughs> not knowing if you've not felt a pulse is a double, double negative that's very hard to manage. <laughs> in today's show, we're packed with more goodies than a Cadbury show bag. Dr. Malice has been prowling the MoMA exhibition at the NGV, and he'll be talking about how visual arts intersect with health and the concept of wellness. While Rainbow will be putting the sin back into medicine when she talks about sex. Or rather, why is it that doctors and health practitioners seem so often to be reluctant to discuss this area of our lives? I was going to say, I'm not talking about sin at all. (laughs) Nice. We'll come back to that one. And finally, misdiagnosis will be revisiting the question of medical waste and recycling in the health system. As part of that conversation, we have a special guest coming in later on, Matthew Hoyne, who's from the Vinyl Council of Australia. And we'll be talking to him later in the show about how, for example, your old intravenous drip bag can find a new life recycled as a garden hose or a kid's play mat. Amazing. But first... Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill. I got a bad case loving you. Uh, welcome back here on Triple R with radiotherapy with Dr. Malice, Rainbow Doc and Misdiagnosis and me, Dr. Nick. And I'm feeling very smug this morning. Well, I <laughs> wonder why Dr. Nick hasn't got anything to do with a thing called football. No, nothing to do with football, but everything but, to do with soccer. Well, yes, the international version of it. And your accent just belies some sort of a... Possibly, sure type of possibly gives the game away that I'm yes. quite excited about a particular team getting through to the semi-final. Semi-final since yeah. when was the last time? I think it could have been Jeff Hurst scoring his hat trick <laughs> in 1966 when I was 10 years old, and very so exciting. It's 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 been a little bit of a gap between uh, cups and and the silverware. Can we just say we're talking about England? Just to to clarify for the 98% of the audience have no idea what we're on about. (laughs) Yes, this is England actually making it for the semi-finals for the first time in decades. 
And uh, as someone who knows, and, and as dear listeners, you would know when Dr. Autonomy was here, that every now and then I would mention a certain football club with yellow and brown stripes and an ex-player called Buddy, and she would get starry-eyed, not because of being in love, but sort of disconnected, like, what are you talking about? So now at least we can talk about the round leather, not the football leather called soccer. I do I do understand autonomy's confusion. When I first arrived in Australia and someone said, oh, nice to meet you, mate, and I thought, I've made a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, so excited. If, if they say, you know, you're just like Buddy, it's yep. not that you are their Buddy, you're like the megastar in the Sydney Swans. 30 okay. years down the track, I'm beginning to get my hand on the uh, misdiagnosis, um, a little bit of medical catch-up stuff. Uh, what caught your eye in the news today? Well, I was scanning through the papers the other day and I saw something that I thought was really quite interesting. It's a little article about hand-washing in hospitals. Uh-huh. And the fact that we sort of we were doing a fantastic job in the hospitals because we'd had hand hygiene rates up to 94% for doctors. So all the doctors coming through and using those little pump packs and cleaning their hands. And yet when they stopped watching, that rate fell to 30%. Ooh, and why does that matter? Why do we care whether people wash their hands? Well, it's not so much washing hands, it's sterilising. So, you know, we're not, we're not looking at removing sort of visible soil from the hands or sort of dirt from the hands, but... Yeah, um, I hope after they've been doing the gardening, they do give them a little wash before they go and examine the patient. Lots of different types of soil Change in the Change the sump oil in their car and... <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, the reason we care so much is you're walking from ward to ward, from room to room, you're touching door handles, you're in contact with these sort of nasty, sick little children and they're spreading germs everywhere and you can easily bring those kind of bugs and germs from one room into the next room and if you're not careful and you're not uh, using adequate hand hygiene it can infect lots of different patients and this, hasn't it been shown that hand washing is one of the simplest most cost effective ways of reducing infection rates in hospitals yeah absolutely it's funny because we we often think about sort of the new gadgets we get in hospitals and the new machines and you know things that go ping and the things that <laughs> sort of look nice in a newspaper and yet one of the most effective things is that sort of $2.50 bottle of hand sanitizer that is outside pretty much every medical ward. But Particularly the- when you're handling those beautiful sick children. <laughs> <laughs> but that's yeah, a- so most of them are pretty beautiful. <laughs> but that is an extraordinary statistics that when the doctors weren't being washed, wa- <laughs> watched washing, where they weren't being observed, they dropped down to less than a third oh. of the rate they should mm, be. That's really... 30%, percent, yeah. yeah. Oh, we doctors, yeah, yeah. we are appalling, aren't we? Um, um, Rainbow, tell me what, what what crossed your plate today. Well, you know this isn't this isn't news. It feels as if it's a bit old news now. But um, I just wanted to take my hat off to Hannah Gadsby uh-huh. and um, the stand-up show Nanette. Um, I don't know. People may have seen this. A lot of people. It seems like everybody's seen it, but I'm sure there are some that haven't. Um, Hannah Gatsby is a stand-up queer comedian and she has this this show is is on Netflix I think that's where most people are seeing it Um, and she talks about how she has as a stand-up for years been basically humiliating herself by telling her own story through jokes rather than telling it for what it is and allowing people to really hear it and the impact that that's had on her and I wanted to mention this because not only to encourage anyone that hasn't seen it to look at it but um, it's coming into therapy rooms um, 
uh, people are talking about it and it's not just queer folk that are talking about it, often talking about it in tears because Hannah is really speaking on behalf of a lot of people and saying things that um, make perfect sense and are really um, um, speaking, you know, the, the truth of people's experience. So what's the context it comes up in the therapy room? Um, well, for um, for people that are queer, it's about you know the realization of how stories are just put to one side and how you know the straight community doesn't or just doesn't get it. And Hannah, in this piece, really, you know, you really do get the idea. You know, hopefully, people are starting to get it. I'm also getting um, have have seen and have heard of other people having, uh, you know, cis white privileged men coming in, going, "Well, what can I do?" And it seems that this piece has actually, you know, the penny has dropped. I was fortunate enough to see that show live. Uh, and a straight white old man I had no idea what the content of this show was going to be and it was excoriating mm. uh, it was brilliant uh, it was terrifying um, yeah. but it was amazingly educational I thought it was superb and just like you I would say if you haven't seen it yet see it yeah particularly if you're health prof- if you're a health professional because it's really important as a health professional to be able to have some knowledge of the queer experience yeah. you know when you're working with queer yeah i'd say see it if you're a health professional see it if you're not see if, yeah, if you're a man see it if you're a woman and yep. see it if you're not sure i mean just everyone yep. should see it yeah. thank <laughs> you hannah <laughs> yes well done hannah um okay well thank you for the catch-up that's been absolutely fascinating you're in the studio with me dr nick dr malice rainbow doc and misdiagnosis malice um we've been thinking about art we've been thinking about wellness tell me what's on your mind well what a wonderful segue from the experience of seeing hannah's show which really comes under the experience of art comedy stand-up comedy drama plays so there are verbal arts visual arts sensory arts immersion arts and so on and this last week uh, i really started to seriously wonder in a light-hearted way having gone to the national gallery victoria's extraordinary exhibition of moma as its moment, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And it is their 90th anniversary next year. And lo and behold, we are the third city in the world to have this touring exhibition after Paris and Berlin. So we're very privileged. Not often that Melbourne goes in the same sentence as Paris and Berlin. Here we are. We're, we're social... Well, we're not social climbing. We're actually punching way above our weight in culture. Uh, in terms of proportion of historical culture. And I think this is a recognition that especially wave the flag for Melbourne, we got it, not Sydney. <clears throat> Melbourne. Ed, Melbourne. <laughs> anyway, the extraordinary experience uh, of having eight rooms dedicated to eight decades from the 1920s to now as we approach the 2020s made me think, what is it about art? It's, it's certainly sustainable over hundreds, if not thousands of years, as we know. And why are there cues flocking up to see literally pieces of canvas with colours on it and shapes, with 
sort of metallic and marble pieces of material that have been sculpted. And we line up and stand in front of these objects called art and we're transfixed. Some of us before a statue, some before a lot, lot of dots and lines, some abstract that we don't even know what we're in front of. Um, and it, it is just quite a mystery. So I thought, what, a, what an opportunity to figure out what my reaction to this experience was. You posed it as a question. I'm glad it's rhetorical and you're now going to answer it. Well, <laughs> I'm going to respond to some of my reflections because, of course, this remains a mystery. And anyone who dares to put a final comment on it has absolutely ruined the experience of art for themselves. So it's one of those layers you unveil in front of your eyes and sometimes with the help of a curator or a a guide or a friend that you go with or a family member or your children who ogle at things you would think are meaningless and for them it is totally enchanting it's their world someone has captured and you think oh well that's just looks so ordinary but you see the experience through other people's eyes and how does this connect with the concept of health or wellness now what a wonderful question because really coming from the mental health profession and we've just talked about the recommendation to health professionals especially to go and see hannah One of the experiences as health professionals that we are obliged to expand our horizons as we get into training and then therapy and uh, meeting with different people is to realise that we are just one frame of reference of ordinariness or normality. And as we've mentioned, the queer population in therapy, their experience as a very different, whether it's a male or a female, versus myself, like yourself, an ageing white male. So how do we overcome biases and prejudices in order to see who we're sitting with, to hear what their problem is, and to actually not disconnect and reach for some standard stereotype textbook definition of fitting that person into the mould, but rather resonating with their distress And after all, what are we all there for as health professionals? To address suffering. So the human condition has suffering for about a million reasons, but clearly as therapists we have to narrow it down. And in my experience, there's about seven or so basic features that art helps me. Now, if I just headline them in a sort of rough way, firstly, people come to me with very distorted memories They have fragments of it, bits and pieces, and art helps them to see themselves through art therapy. So this is another dimension other than what I'm speaking about is passive viewing of art. In therapy, we actually prescribe art. So you're talking about memory almost as a cubist phenomenon? Well, some people have a abstract memory of their own autobiographical memory, or as you showed us in the green room before, this extraordinary artwork from a family of a patient, they self-portrait their condition. But that expression may be aesthetically pleasing to someone else, but for them it could be life-saving. It is a communication 
of their inner essence. And just talking art therapy for a moment, if we can, because mm. as scientists, uh, we like evidence and that sort of thing. I've always been interested in art therapy um, to know whether, um, while it sounds as though it ought to be helpful, it feels as though it should be helpful. Has anyone managed to prove it? Oh, yes, they have. I, I, oh. This was not a set-up question, by the way, but you've just hit on my pet topic, which is the neuroscience of art and the neuroscience of art therapy. And just very briefly to give you the proof, most serious disorders have got a traumatic foundation, whatever their comorbid or coexistent suffering is. And the essence of traumatic experience is a disconnect. So what does art do? It reconnects. It is as elementary as it should be, and it should be aesthetically simple, beautiful, and to follow Occam's razor. We shouldn't follow very complex ideas where a simple one will do. Now, those are lovely words. You still haven't given me the proof. The proof is in the whole science of relational trauma and what's called dissociative attunement. The proof comes from MRI scans of the brains of people who have been traumatised. And they are, whether they're a baby, mind you, not someone who's abused, just someone who's not actually connected within the nursery. So what's called relational trauma. And their brain pretty much well mimics the brain of a war veteran. That is, their frontal lobe uh, is totally disconnected from what the deepest stru structures are called, the amygdala, and it's an amygdala hijack process. Now, we want proof, and the proof now is in the imagery of these brains. They're, they're structural changes so that traumatised people's brains are not like non-traumatised. Beyond that, it's not just the brain, it's the whole body because we know about the brain-gut axis, the pituitary-hypothalamic uh, adrenal axis. We know all sorts of evidence. But let's go back to the more generic... Does that satisfy the evidential... So if I can break it down into the sort of simplistic terms I need as a simple right. character. I, I like the simple, simple terms. <laughs> I, Go for it. If I understand you correctly, um, we can do scans showing that the brain's a bit of a mess when <laughs> people have had trauma. We give them some heart therapy and those yeah. reconnections occur and their brains look more normal. Is that, and we know is that when right? those brains are all a mess, we know that inside in our bodies, in our torsos, in our emotions, that's a mess too. Yes. Well, yes, exactly. Yes. That, let's substitute mess for chaotic, depersonalised, derealised, a whole lot of very fancy <laughs> words, but ultimately we feel absolutely a mess. So is that fair to go on? Yeah, I'm happy because I wanted proof because it feels like it should work and now you're telling me we have evidence that and art therapy is effective, which makes me very happy. And, and there are textbooks on it. I was fortunate enough, in fact, to review one so I can give you after the show the, the actual books that have got all the references in it. And it's just an exciting face to be living in. I thought in. I was doing community radio. I feel like I'm in a peer-reviewed journal. Where I've been <laughs> well, the references. if it's peer review, <laughs> misdiagnosis, you okay with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. can definitely give Dr. Nixon okay. my work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, so that was point one of seven. So we've got now, six I'll, more to I'll go. And another 35 minutes. Well, so I, we'll the time, some. I'll just headline and you, you pick which one you like to discuss because there's question of hope and hopelessness, dignity in being together with other people's experiences or being alone, the rebalancing of our extreme experiences, the capacity in a safe space, after all, a concert, a ballet show, 
a, a, a National Gallery of Victoria exhibition. These are safe spaces. And what do we do there? I mean, we obviously chat and view, but we self-reflect. Standing in front of these awesome pieces of artwork, we actually get reflections of parts of ourselves. And in doing that, we readdress the next one, which is reality and fantasy, the boundary between what we thought we had convictions of who we are, what we are, we self-loathe, we self-hate, we do all sorts of terrible self-things. And here we see the possibility of that's a fantasy system. And finally, we are desensitized by seeing the artist's anguish portrayed either in music or literature, in verse, in poetry. And so these are the seven headings. Now, I'm happy to go with whatever we want to de-mess ourselves with. Can we vote? <laughs> we can vote, yes. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, I was, I was rather entranced by the poetry of how you put all that. It was, I know, it's It was beautiful. elegant to listen to. It was almost art in its own right in your description of it. The, the bit that stuck with me when you said stand in front and stillness yes. and self-reflect... Yes. I remember a psychotherapist taking a group that I was involved in a very long time ago, and she said to us doctors, they were all doctors in this group, she said, when do you ever sit and do nothing? Yes. And we all looked at each other and looked at her, and most of us, including myself, didn't even understand the question. Yes. What was this concept of sitting and doing nothing? And it was, a, to me, a very, very powerful intervention. And I, I, I've tried to do that since, spent some time sitting, doing nothing. And perhaps one of the things you're saying with that self-reflection is it's a time when we do that, when we stop all those other processes, this intense interaction with the world which we experience otherwise. It precisely. In fact, there's an adage that I was taught in my own psychotherapy training to do with child psychotherapy, where the adage was, don't just do something, sit there. And that is one of the hardest tasks when you're in front of and sitting with a distressed child or adolescent or parent to actually sit there and not react and do and prescribe and somehow talk them out of their own experience. And so in the art world, one of the great gifts is in, in here in Melbourne and in all cities where there's art centres where you walk in to this safe space that culture has endowed to you, what you can reasonably expect is at least an hour or half a day, if you're lucky, or longer if you're even luckier, to actually immerse yourself in your own experiences. This is, uh, this is not philosophical. It's actually your sensations. You can track being moved and whether you then become, say, tearful or joyous or puzzled and bewildered and you actually don't get talked out of it and if you've got an audio headphone on, you stay and linger and deepen your experience in that and some people I see take notes. Presumably art students actually sketch there and get inspired and the idea of moving outside of your own frame of experience. And this is why some people talk about art being ecstatic. And if we go back to the meaning of the word, word ecstatic, it comes from actually Latin ecstasis, that most of our life mm. is we're static, stationary, put in a place. And if we're in front of and beholding some great work of art, visual, auditory, sensory, movement, whatever, we actually temporarily become like gods. We go into ecstasy, another universe. 
And that is the inspiration that we come out with. We're not just excited by it because that can be just like a, a Lunar Park uh, ride. We're very excited. Here we're actually inspired, literally inspiration, inspire the breath because some artwork, and I, it's, I've been blessed to have this experience, it takes my breath away. I think that's extraordinary, and next time I'm looking at a painting, I, I will expect divinity to descend upon me, um, which is just a, a lovely thought. Now, could I just <laughs> correct the ge- geography of that? Oh, it will be divinity that's within you, ah, you will connect with. It will erupt from within. Within, oh, yes. Okay. Now, what I, what I did want to ask <laughs> I want to get that checked out. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, for that, Thank you, you really Dinosis, need the pulse, yes. and you put your finger on it, and some people who faint are just overcome by ecstasy. So I, so I do want to ask you that question about the headphones and so on and the audio guides because I'm always a little bit conflicted about this because I'm never quite sure whether I should be standing appreciating the paintings, getting my divinity erupting <laughs> from within on its own or do I need an audio guide to tell me where it's coming from? See, your question is so profound but it's got an awe. It has. It's a binary question. Yes, and um, I would say go for both. Yes, I love that. <laughs> well, I would imagine that it is a lot easier for some people to have those headphones on with the yeah. audio because without that, there's the, you know, people have voices, music, whatever in their head to distract them from that mess in the rest of their body and therefore that would would help to be able to stay in this as you described and i think the really important thing you're saying malice is that this can only happen because it's a safe place yes yes i think that we see this not only in the galleries but in the wider culture you walk down swanson street burke street busy streets in our city and how many people have got their iphones plugged in and either talking to a particular person, that is their precious relationship is the only thing they're focused on, or music. And in fact, culture nowadays is really distracting. It's actually called, in some circles, noise pollution. Yeah. And so when we talk about noise pollution, we really are purifying the air of noise by putting on the filters. That's after all what they are. They allow selective sounds which is of our choosing and choice. And the rest is polluting for that moment. Rather than sitting still, as you were instructed to do, Dr Nick, because that wouldn't have noise in it, would it? Absolutely not, and no headphones allowed when you're sitting still. That's been absolutely fabulous, Malison, Mm. and you've touched on a subject which I'm sure we'll come back to another time about the the devices, noise pollution, and the ubiquity of things in our ears and eyes. Can Um, I just give a, a visual picture of it? When Dr Malice people listening was talking about that he was literally bouncing up and down yeah. in yes, his you could almost, chair you with could excitement feel the divinity it was trying great. to get out yes. it was, it was <laughs> inspired you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia and uh, rainbow uh, you've got an axe to grind or should i say an axe to grinder because <laughs> you, <laughs> you want to. Oh, oh, that, no wasn't what, that wasn't how That's we were an awful Sunday morning panel. Yeah. Take that one back. Uh, um, anyway, tell us what you want to talk about. Yeah, I I um, wanted to talk about sex. Now, anyone who is 
driving to visit the grandparents with little people in the back of the car. It's okay. We're not going to be talking about sex. We're going to be talking about talking, talking about talking about sex, um, which is a very different thing. Um, and I'd like to ask you a question, actually, panel. Do you ask your patients about sex? Well, that's a that's a really good question, and I guess I got sensitised to this a number of years ago, and particularly as my patient group age with me, I found it's a more and more relevant topic, and and the answer is I actually do quite a lot ask that question. Good, Malice. Could I respond by saying it depends on what you mean by talk, okay. because. I use not only language but body language. So, for example, if someone speaks about an experience that sounds like a traumatic sex that they had been traumatised by, I might sigh or I might raise my eyebrows and go, oh, my gosh. Now, that is part of the conversation. Yes, just because you're not using words. So I'm not using words. That's my message, that there is verbal conversation, but I only engage in verbal conversation when I know it's safe. Because sometimes when I think it's ready, then they may not be, and that's not going to be good therapy. And misdiagnosis in your training so far, what have you been told to talk about sex? We've had a couple of communications workshops on how to talk to people about sex and ask questions and it's always very awkward because there is a 25 of us in the room and one student, which often happens to be me, sitting at the front <laughs> asking questions of a sort of ageing tutor who's pretending to be a 19-year-old woman or a 19-year-old man with you know, some kind of discharge they want to talk about. So we, we do get training. Have I done it in a sort of formal setting in the hospital so far? Not really. I think I don't really have the confidence to do it yet. I'd actually really probably appreciate watching some of, sort of the more experienced doctors sort of talk about it first so that I could get, get an idea of what it's like when you're not in front of a group of 20 of your peers. And okay. So this is exactly why I wanted to raise this subject because, you know, there was a piece of research done not so long ago in Canada where they found that amongst psychologists, only 70% of psychologists had any talk about sex in their training. Um, and it doesn't need to be, you know, you'd like to think that people train and they come out and they're fully cooked. Of course, we're not. Um, so there is always the opportunity for ongoing, ongoing training. And, um, I think sex, sex is an area. It's when people aren't talking about it, it's often because for them, there's an issue around it and it becomes difficult. And I've come across someone who didn't actually didn't like to use the word buttocks um in and this was through doing a, a a meditative kind of process with a client and i was teaching someone how to talk through the body and use the word buttocks and they kind of went oh, i couldn't say that and i said well you need to practice saying that word until it feels okay i in my training didn't get any um education around this but i had um uh, one sentence that was said to me by one of the elders now of Swinburne University Psychology Department, Dr. Roger Cook, who said in one of our classes, you have to ask the sex question. And 
those words kind of resonated with me a lot. And and then when I started working with people, I realised that I wasn't particularly comfortable doing that and needed to do something about it. Um, you know, there are two ways that sex comes up in therapy. One is that people will bring something of a sexual nature into the conversation, at which point we need to be open and non-judgmental. We need to have that body language, as you said, Malice. We need to be able to send the message that this is okay to talk about. And the other way is that we raise the subject. And in an assessment, if you do an, a sort of formal assessment, that needs to be a question, just as you would ask about sleep and drug and alcohol and, and all sorts of relationships and work and all, all sorts of other things. We need to ask about sex and we need to if we're going to try and open a conversation also ask for consent to talk about sex because consent is such a massive issue um in with with sex particularly people presenting with a history of sexual trauma that is there if there is any inkling that there is not consent in the conversation that is going to be potentially a a trigger for you know the same experience of of closing up of of feeling attacked of feeling violated now you mentioned the difficulty someone have with the word buttocks how much of the issue around sex is that we struggle with the right language about naming parts and knowing how actually to talk about it well we 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 don't know how to talk about it i mean my experience is um talking to to clients they do not communicate with their partner or partners about sex always in fact if they have partners they are more likely to have the language and communicate it you know i think there's a lot to be learnt from that when there is there is um people that do have partners that they have to find the language to talk about how things are going to be and the other piece around that, about that in terms of the 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 jargon the language the words is that we need to be able to take the words that our patients and clients use you know you can argue that we need to use the the correct anatomical words for parts of the body particularly the genitalia but often are um the people that we're talking to have their own words and it's important to use those words rather than almost shame people about how they talk about it it doesn't matter how they talk about it we just want to encourage them to be able to safely without feeling shamed about how they do it um, it's funny you say that in the communications workshops that I've been part of was one of the things that I was moderately ridiculed for, which was using the patient's words that someone had said, you know, I'd, I'd sort of said, what, what brings you in today? And we'd sort of had a chat about things that weren't important before finally the mock patient said, well, doc, it's my balls. And I said, OK, well, you know, tell me about your balls, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And everyone in the room started laughing. And, you know, I think it was amusing for sort of a, a group of sort of 20 young people watching sort of one of their colleagues do this. And later sort of someone came up to me and made a joke about it and sort of about me asking questions about people's balls. But at the time, you know, I thought that was the appropriate Absolutely. way to talk to the patient, Absolutely. to use their language, to not medicalise it. Could I just suggest why there were people who were laughing? It was their discomfort. Thank you. Laughter is yeah, one of exactly. the most common ways of warding off the next sentence. Yeah. 
spot on malice that's exactly what i was thinking as well and it's it's interesting isn't it because uh, the language is important if if someone said oh well actually i'm worried about my doodle you feel a bit odd saying well what's the matter with your doodle but those are the patient's words that's what yeah. makes sense to them so i can quite see why a bunch of students are going to roll around the floor laughing yeah but that that laughter is their discomfort not the inappropriateness of the word but exactly. i think i think part of the point is that there's there might be shame on the on the patient side about talking about this but we have to make sure that we're not causing shame for the people that are being taught to talk about it in the first place as well yes that's exactly right yeah so, so what should we be doing more of in the health setting then well educating educating ourselves um you know if it, if you know that it's something that you avoid you know, it, it's important to do something about that and familiarize yourself not necessarily with the ins and outs of sexual workings of the body but just to put yourself in a situation where people are talking about sex so you know, do some professional development or, you know, go online and look at, at, at some educational um, TED Talks, perhaps. I'm sure they're out there. Um, there is, um, in, in Melbourne, there's quite an active um, society of Australian sexologists and you don't have to be a sex therapist to be a member of that, but you need to be interested. And by being part of something like that, you would be exposed to talk around sexual issues. Um, the other thing that you can do is, you know, look for look for workshops. That I don't know of any in Melbourne, actually. There's a, a sex therapist in Sydney called Tanya Coons, Um who runs workshops on exactly this. She does it in Sydney. I know that she's tried to bring it down to Melbourne, but it's been hard to find enough people that are interested because of exactly that same thing. They are concerned about putting themselves out there and maybe showing their discomfort. Uh, just listening to this, I've had a flashback to my own training days and we had a lady called a young woman at that stage who was Bettina Arndt, mm-hmm. who yes. was an internationally renowned, later became sexologist and sex expert. And she was actually our teacher in undergraduate medical education for talking sexually loaded or themed issues. So it just seemed to us at Monash, this was Monash University, which was regarded as quite a radical revolutionary place to start with but we just thought that that's what you do you have a chat and she i think this highlights the value of having a role model in your training days because if that's normalized then for the rest of your career you think oh well the university thought it was all right it must be okay so we'll just have a conversation if the university thinks it's taboo then I think you transmit taboos generationally. And I think that's, that absolutely makes sense to me. And one of the things I'm hearing you say, Rainbow, is that uh, in the health setting, people just need to incorporate this conversation more often. It's one of those things, once you start doing it, okay, that's relevant, it wasn't that hard. But if people don't think about it, they don't do it. We need to turn that around and start that ball rolling. Yeah, and people need to be... Mm. People need... (laughs) People need to be... (laughs) People need to feel comfortable, need to be comfortable and accept that as long as there is consent, 
anything goes. Thank you very much. And with that note, because consent, of course, crucial in this whole area. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're joined in the studio by Matthew Hoyne from Wellvic Victoria. Thanks for coming in, Matthew. Thank you very much for having me. And, and we're following up on a segment because we had an email from a, a listener, Sonia Khan. Sonia, thank you for alerting us to this. When we talked about medical waste and recycling a while back, and she said, well, you've only just sort of scratched the surface of this. And she mentioned uh, about the Vinyl Council of Australia. I thought, I like, love records. I'd, I'd be into that. <laughs> Turns out it's nothing to do with records and so on. Tell us about the Vinyl Council and what you're up to, Matthew. Um, The Vinyl Council is an industry body group that represents all the vinyl producers here in Australia. But just to correct you, we actually do make all the vinyl for the vinyl record place here in Melbourne. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do you make them out of old drip, yes. drip bags? Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, we, um, we've been involved for a long time with the industry and um, the Vinyl Council uh, was set up basically 20 years ago um, to start to improve the image of the vinyl industry, um, at which point in time around the 2000 Olympics, it had some issues with Greenpeace. So right. <laughs> uh, um, we basically had set up the industry to start improving the image of the PVC industry. Okay. So I guess this kind of came to my attention, Matthew, when um, there was a paper published in The Lancet earlier this year about hospital admissions and waste in hospitals. And it was a really interesting paper because it said approximately 7% of Australia's um, carbon footprint comes from the health sector. Uh, and of that, about 44% is attributed to hospitals. So what role does uh, recycling vinyls within the hospital setting um, contribute to this? Oh, it plays a massive role now. Um, the program itself, if you, the hospitals are exceptionally wasteful. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's estimated roughly around 2,500 tonnes of vinyl goes into hospital and the medical system each year. Um, that's all single use. And up until recently, it was all going to landfill or to um, clinical waste. For That's two and a half thousand tons. I mean, I can't even conceptualise a ton of vinyl waste, well, let alone two and a half thousand. It's Fifty of them. million IV bags. <laughs> Extraordinary. So there's a, quite a lot of products being used um, out there, and we were approached in 2009 by Dr. Forbes um, again. And he was uh, mortified by the amount of uh, product that was going to landfill and asked to see if there was some way of setting up a program to start to uh, minimise the amount of product going to landfill. So, so can you tell us a bit about the programs that have been set up so far? So it took a little while. Um, a lot of it was word of mouth. Um, but 2013, we launched the program um, properly and we now have something in the order of 140 hospitals um, in place who are basically have a, a couple of wheelie bins in either an ICE unit or a, a ward recovery unit. And the staff are all trained to um, take masks, um, airline tubes and um, saline bags and put them in those bins. They're collected by um, a, an appropriate medical waste company and then they're sorted and sent out to our business to start the recycling process. And then what happens to them once they get to your business? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> um, the the products have been um, first of all cleaned and then um, recompounded into new plastic. Um, it's then sold on to companies who turn it into everything from matting, um, whether it be porous matting or chill 
playground matting out in the uh, the parks. Um, it's also going into hoses um, for gardens and things like that. And we're slowly moving that product into more and more applications, including a number of different industrial applications. Mm. And uh, am I right in saying that with the plastic, it has to be downcycled, that it, that it goes into a sort of a lesser form of the plastic? Unfortunately... Um, in a lot of the cases in Australia, there are standards that have to be met and some of those standards prohibit the use of recycled products um, in their um, thing. So in the case of the saline bags, no, I can't put the saline bag back into a saline bag. Mm. It has to be used in something else. Um, that's the downside of some of these things, yes. I mean, of, of course, it's it's much better to have these things recycled in the first yes, place correct. and have any kind of recycling. But I do think it's interesting that, um, you know, I certainly didn't know this before I started doing some reading on it. Um, one of my medical colleagues just published her first book uh, called A Zero Waste Life, and she informed me that um, all the plastic that's been created in the world since 1950 still exists in some form on this planet. Uh, is that your understanding of this as well? Technically, yes. It probably does exist in um, that sense. Um, the the challenge, I guess, I mean, we're currently at the stage where we're moving um, about 10% of, out of hospitals is currently being collected and, and mm. reused again, which means that there's 10% less new plastic being created each time. The... The challenge, I guess, for all of us is to ensure how do you get that up to 50, 60, 70% because some of this product will never, ever be recycled. Mm. Some of it has to go to clinical waste. Um, but, you know, ultimately you have a, a vision where somewhere in the next three to five years we'll have over 200 hospitals collecting 60, 70% of the waste, which is, you know, in excess of 2,000 tonnes of material that's no longer going to landfill. Mm. So what have been the biggest barriers in the hospital? You're saying that, you know, maybe only 10% of the waste that could be collected is being collected at this stage. Yeah. What's, what's stopping that from being a higher percentage? Um, a number of things. Um, training. Um, there's a lot of in-service training being done at the moment, but contamination of the bins is a huge problem. Um, despite your best efforts, um, people are either contaminating them through ignorance um, or lack of training or unfortunately the systems are not in place that the bins are protected from outsiders where someone can walk past and throw coke cans or but surely these things are contaminated in the first place aren't they i mean it must be contaminated by blood and so on surely someone chucking your maccas in there is is not gonna it's not yeah well we do get the blood stuff every once in a while but that's part of the training is that we're not taking back anything because ah, it's clinical waste. So all clinical waste still has to go for disposal that ah, way. Okay. Right. Um, it's only products that are clean effectively. So you have IV lines that have just had saline in them. Right. So that's not a... An and issue. I presume the ideal is that we would technologicalise you out of your business. We need to find an alternative to all this vinyl. Is there anything on the horizon that works as well? No, there's not. And I think that's part of the other challenge is that if you look at the recycling in a, as a concept, people need to th- start thinking about saying, how do I ensure that I design a product to be recycled before it even goes into circulation? And I think the other second part of that is that, you know, as consumers, we have an ability to force change. And mm. if consumers demand that people, when they buy stuff, have an ability to recycle that product or they have a program in place, then the more that consumers demand that and support companies that have recycling in place, then the bigger the the chance of this succeeding. 
one of the things misdiagnosis told me off air before we came on, which I thought was fascinating as a GP myself, uh, is that one of the most effective ways of reducing medical waste is keep people out of hospital. <laughs> because uh, general practice apparently contributes, what was it, only 4% or something? Yes, uh, of that 7% of, um, of sort of medical waste across Australia, it's, it's 4% that's attributed to general practice. So the best way to ad- reduce emissions is to reduce admissions. <laughs> Nice, I like that. Yes, yes, because our our general practice carbon footprint is much lower than the, the than in the hospital system. Yeah, well, if doctors for the environment want to employ me, I'm still a student. I'm not earning any money, so I'm, I'm available. <laughs> so, so Matthew, tell us a bit more about the the final council. What what else is it? Just medical waste, or are they involved oh, in no, other? No, areas? I mean, the business, uh, the final council represents everyone in the industry, and so the whole program has been designed around. A, removing a number of different um, items out of the plastics industry that were deemed to be inappropriate. One of the examples is lead, um, was used extensively, and now it's basically been removed. What was lead used for in the plastic? It's a stabiliser in plastics. Okay. It stops it from burning. Um, And the... I think the other important thing with the vinyl industry too is that over 90% of the vinyl that is consumed in Australia is actually going into products that last between 10 and 100 years um, in service. So whether it be a, a cable in your wall or a, a downpipe on your on your house, it's not being um, turned over in a quick... So it's mainly the medical industry that actually is actually consuming a lot of one one or single-use um And that's, uh, that's the notion of, of cradle-to-grave with these Correct. things, isn't it? That we want to look at something from its, from its birth from its design and sort of design it so that we can do something sustainable with it in the future. Yes, and, and that's part of what's been trying to be created through the product stewardship programs of the Vinyl Council and also its, its trademark, which is the best environmental practice, is trying to create uh, an environment here in Australia where manufacturers who create the plastics in the first place, like us, um, also have a recycling business that are able to take that plastic back and turn it into something else. Now, the vinyl records, which I love so much, but um, when we've had enough of those, can we recycle them? Those old Bing Crosbys and yes, uh, My Fair Ladies <laughs> copies that are scratched beyond belief or should never have been made in the first place? Yes, we are currently recycling. So we, don't, we, ju- we, do, we do currently recycle them. So we shouldn't just records. chuck them in the bin? No. Okay, that's that's helpful to know. And and the, and where does the vinyl come from that makes vinyl records? Uh, well, it's basically a a, a branch of the of the plastics industry. Um, so uh, vinyl is half oil and half salt. <laughs> but none of the there's nothing in a record that's made out of a recycled product. Currently today, yeah. yes, there is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're just trying to justify your large collection. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer that Dr. Nick would like is that it comes from IV bags. Cause <laughs> Unfortunately, no. They don't come from IV bags I, I justify it a little bit like going to an op shop, which is where I buy my records, in that they were they were created a very long time ago. So I'm not – I don't buy new vinyl. I'm only buying the old. <laughs> and Matthew, that's, that's been fascinating. We could talk about this for a lot longer, but thank you very much for coming into the studio Thank you for your work, and um, it's lovely to hear that at least we're starting along that path of recycling and reusing some of this stuff from hospital waste. Thank you, Dr. Malice, Rainbow Doc Misdiagnosis, and Matthew Hoyne from Weltvik. Um, don't forget you can follow us on Facebook if you missed this or you want to catch up. You can listen to our podcasts, and when you're out on the road, you can get us live anytime through the website. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.